Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swamini Dinamane Namaste Saraswati Deve Goravani Pachani Nivasesa Sinavani Paskatyade Satani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Chha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sagana Raghunatam Vitam Samsajivam Sadvaitam Sadvaditam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sagana Lalita Shri Vishakamadi Kamsha Vanchakapa Chubhishtra Kipasandriya Vatapatitam Pavaniva Vaishnaviya Om Nima Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Nima Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Nima Bhagavate Vasudevaya March 31st, 2021, class from Hawaii over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 25, The Descriptions of the Characteristics of King Purandana, Text 2. Rudra Gitam Bhagavatam Sarve Japantaste tapaste pur Varshanam mayutam jale Rudra Gitam The song sung by Lord Shiva Bhagavataha of the Lord. Of the Lord. Stotram. Prayer. Prayer. Sarve. All. Prachetasaha. The princes known as the Prachetas. The princes known as the Japantaha. Reciting. Te. All of them. Tapaha. Austerity. Tepuhu. Executed. Varshanam. Of years. Ayutam. Ten thousand. Jale. Within the water. Within the water. Srila Prabhupada's translation and purport. All the Prachetta princes simply stood in the water for 10,000 years and recited the prayers given to them by Lord Shiva. Purport. Of course, in the modern age, one may be amazed at how the princes could stand in the water for 10,000 years. However, living within air or living within water is the same process. One simply has to learn how to do it. The aquatics live within water for their whole lifespan. Certain favorable conditions are created to enable them to live within water. In those days, however, people used to live for 100,000 years. Out of so many years, if one could spare 10,000 years for the sake of austerity, he would be assured of success in his future life. This was not very astonishing. Although such a feat is impossible in this age, it was quite possible in such a yuga. 
Rudra Gita Bhagavataha, Stotram Sarve Pratetasaha, Japantaste Tapaste Pur Varshanam Ayutam Jale. All the Prateta princes simply stood in the water for 10,000 years and recited the prayers given to them by Lord Shiva. So maybe some of you have been to a Japa workshop. I, I remember uh, Sachinanda Maharaj saying how the first time that he did a Japa retreat, it was, I don't know, four or five days of uh, 64 rounds of Japa per day with a vow of silence other than Japa until you finished your Japa, and that was like a week. And people couldn't handle it. <laughs> they, were, they were not happy. Uh, so, I, I mean, when I went to the, my first and only <laughs> lengthy Japa retreat, that's actually what I was expecting. I thought, wow, this is going to be an intensive group, 64 round Japa a day, rounds a day at least, time with Monavrat. And uh, they, they didn't do that. It was four or five days, and two of those were 64 round days. Um, then there was lots of classes and all kinds of other things. On the other days, lots of talking about Japa, and I, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is wishy-washy. <laughs> I was expecting an intensive. Uh, but I don't think I could do something this intense. I mean, anybody? 10,000 years? A, a Japa retreat for 10,000 years. Japantaste Tapas, this was their austerity that uh, Varshanam Ayutam for 10,000 years. Of course, they were, they were chanting a complex prayer. They weren't just chanting a mantra. They were chanting this whole prayer of Lord Shiva. I didn't have him counted the verses, but, uh, you know, it's like perhaps if you were to be chanting what we usually chant from the Brahma Samhita, how many the verses that is, 20 or something, and you were chanting that over and over and over again for 10,000 years. Uh, you'd certainly know the slokas very well when you were finished with that. So not only that, that they had this extended japa retreat for this, uh, it's called both Rudra Gita, the song of Rudra, the song of Lord uh, Shiva, and Stotram, it's called both the Stotram and uh, Gita. And not only were they doing this, they were doing it underwater. Why underwater? So underwater, so you're not disturbed. I guess you could be disturbed by the fish. That's what's happened to Subari Muni. Subari Muni was also meditating underwater. And he saw some fish mating, which, I, I don't know, you know, I wouldn't think that would be a highly pornographic <laughs> arousing thing <laughs> but he was disturbed and he went out and married 50 sisters of course it is said that he was not really so much disturbed by the fish but because he had committed Vaishnava Parad against Garuda therefore that Vaishnava Parad was such that it induced him to be disturbed by fish and we have Vishramrita who was meditating underwater he got disturbed by Menaka. A uh, lot more alluring than some fish, I would think. So Menika is a heavenly damsel, an apsara, uh, one of the most beautiful women in the universe. And she comes and she's just tinkling her jewelry. Right? There's a story in the 11th canto. One of the gurus was this young girl who was poor. And when she had some guests come, she didn't want them to know that she didn't have any servants to help her cook. 
So she took off her jewelry so it wouldn't uh, indicate to everybody that she was cooking alone with her bangles clashing against each other. And there's also the lesson of, of the bangles clashing. It's like two people get together, they gossip. So better to be alone as a renunciate. Uh, anyway, so Menika's jewelry was clanging and Vishwamita became disturbed from his underwater meditation. There may be some other examples as well, but here we have the Prachetas. There's Vishwamita, Sobar Muni, who were meditating underwater. Uh, sometimes persons meditate in a cave, or we have places in the Vrindavan area where our Gaudiya Acharyas, some of them, uh, had like a cellar, an underground cellar. I assume that would be helpful for the climate as well. Underground, it stays warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. But there, they're not disturbed by others. Now, of course, one thing about meditating underwater is that you would have to be expending some sort of energy in order to get your body to exist underwater. You'd have to be using some of your energy. Like we know these uh, demon wizards who they're able to use their mystic power to create a semblance of another form. Like Putana, she was able to use her mystic power to create this illusion of a beautiful earthling, beautiful human. And uh, Vyomasura also, he was able, and Palumbasura, they used their power to make themselves look like cowherd boys. But in each of these cases, once they had to fight, and once they were losing uh, energy through fighting, they couldn't maintain their, their form anymore. Because part of their mystic power was going to maintain their their form. I mean, I think it's like, you know, when we're really upset about something, it's hard to pretend that everything's okay. <laughs> you know, we're, we're putting out some energy. Uh, the other day I was feeling sick and, and one devotee said to me, you know, you look great. And I said, well, I don't feel as great as I look. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we put out some energy to, to smile and look happy even if, you know, uh, our backs hurting or something like that. So it requires some energy, and if we have too many things to carry, then we can't carry all of them, and we stop doing that. So when to be able to live under the water would have to require some maintenance. It, it wouldn't be so automatic like living uh, above the water. And living underwater, one would also wonder about eating. You know, we have uh, Juva Maharaj, who gradually ate less and less and less, you know, he was eating just like forest berries, and then he was eating dried leaves. That's the kind of thing that like deer would eat. And then he was not eating anything. He was just breathing. He was living without food for some time. And we have Aranyakashipu, who lived without food and without water for so long that his body was eaten away, that all there was was his bones. And he kept his uh, prana circulating in his bones, so he kept the soul associated with the bones. I mean, that happens sometimes with ghosts that ghosts, uh, someone dies and they don't want to accept that they're dead. They don't. They're Many times they still think that they are alive and they hang around the dead body. Uh, usually they're not inside the dead body, like with Hiranyakashipu, but they're hanging around. Uh, the soul's hanging around. With Hiranyakashipu, Lord Brahma put some water from his kamandalu on him and Hiranyakashipu got this beautiful, handsome, strong Thunderbolt resistant, you know, we can buy water resistant clothing, uh, bug resistant clothing. He got a, a thunderbolt resistant body. Hmm? So, 10,000 years underwater, 
the brachetas, uh, we don't know, did they stay the whole 10,000 years straight under the water? Did they ever come up to breathe air? Srila Prabhupada seems to indicate that they learned how to breathe the oxygen that's dissolved in water, like fish do. So the fish have some kind of gill system, most of them, and they bring the water through their gills and they extract the oxygen that is yeah, within the water. That's why if you keep fish within a fish tank, you have to have some kind of aerator. You have to have something that's bubbling the water. Of course, in the great oceans, this is done by the wind. So the wind is churning the waves on the top of the ocean, and that's putting air into the water. Of course, the deeper down you go, the less air there is, the more water pressure there is, uh, the less there's sunlight to uh, help plants do photosynthesis, so there's not as many creatures that can live uh, deep within the water. And, and Prabhupada just says, well, something has to learn how to do this. So I have no idea how one would do this because our lungs are not designed to extract air from wa- oxygen from water. In fact, if our lungs fill with water, we get very sick and we probably die. So I don't know what their, what their method was to extract oxygen from water uh, without damaging their lungs. But Prabhupada says one something has to know how to do it. Uh, so we read these kind of things, and uh, many of us may think uh, that sounds really like a stretch of my credibility, of my ability to believe something. It sounds incredible. Uh, incredible. I, I can't have faith in it. I mean, we have, uh, you know, several really incredulous things going on here to chant Japa for 10,000 years. <laughs> As I say, most of us would struggle to chant Japa for 10 hours. Yes? So 10,000 years. And to be breathing under the water, living under the water. How are they eating? How are they maintaining their life? They, they come out and we'll find out when they come out, they're, they're really strong and, and competent yeah, they burn all the trees with their eyes and so forth. So there's a whole lot of things going on here. And Prabhupada just says, you have to know how to do it. And uh, they did it in such a go. Another thing that's uh, unbelievable is just that they had 10,000 years to do it in. And this uh, seems like this was taking place on our planet. Prabhupada says it was taking place in such a uh, where people lived for a very long time. But... Uh, still, you know, according to the modern day, people are lucky to live to be 100. I mean, if somebody, you know, few people live to be 114 or 120 or something like that, but that's very rare. And of course, uh, generally, if they live that long, they're not particularly functional. <laughs> so it's, it's rare. I mean, I, my grandmother-in-law lived to 102, and she was quite functional until the last maybe five months of her life. But you know, 10,000 years. <laughs> so we have a, a lot of things in this one little verse that, just one little verse, that is far out. And throughout the Srimad Bhagavatam, and of course the other Puranas and so forth, we find these sort of amazing far out stories. Yes? I mean, just speaking very frankly, one of the things that I don't like about Hinduism is the uh, the plethora of these fantastical stories about everything to explain everything <laughs> you know that the hindus have 
they have a story for everything, and and a lot of their stories are really like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is kind of the same kind of story. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we could look at the lesson of uh, a lot of things we could do with this verse. I mean, we could look at the value of austerity. We could look at the value of japa. We could look at the value, which we talked about before, of getting the mood of our acharyas by singing their songs, uh, meditating on their songs. But I think today we're just going to look at how do we deal with these fantastic statements. What, what do we do about them? And these fantastic statements are a big reason why there's many people who don't accept scripture. Yes? So we're going to look at the fact that everybody has some faith in something, that all religions, all spiritual processes, and all scientific theories have fantastic descriptions that even through empirical knowledge in 2021, there are all kinds of fantastic things going on and where we should put our faith. So let's look first at the fact that everyone has some faith. So we all have something that we believe to be true. Uh, we're reading right now in Bhakti Shastri, the 17th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, and Srila Prabhupada says there that faith is originally in the mode of goodness. Huh? That faith is originally in the mode of goodness. So what does that mean? So the mode of goodness is sattva. The word sattva. Sat means true, eternal, and good. So when we say faith is originally in the mode of goodness, what do we mean by faith? We mean what we believe to be true. What do I believe to be true? What do I believe to be good? It could even mean what do I believe to be eternal or universal. And what I believe to be true and good and perhaps even eternal or universal should be what is actually <laughs> true and good and maybe even eternal and universal, which means that original faith is in sattva by definition. Because if I believe something to be true and good that is not so, <laughs> then there is a discord between reality and what I believe. So faith in Rajagun or faith in Tamagun has this disharmony. One believes something that is not true. And I think we can safely say that at least in 2020, that human beings, well, I don't know if I'm going to say all, but we'll say the vast majority, hold some beliefs that are not true. Now, sometimes these are big, big, big beliefs about big, important things, earth-shattering things, and sometimes they are just beliefs about what something means in our everyday life. You know, so he didn't invite me to his party, that means he doesn't like me. Maybe it means something else. We get a belief, we, we get a story about something, about what's, what somebody did or what something means. 
and our beliefs are often not true. Now, what's fascinating is that psychological and sociological research points out that our perception is a result of our beliefs rather than our beliefs are a result of our perception. And this is a philosophical fact of Sankhya, which is explained very nicely in the Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita. So if in my heart, Prabhupada writes about how these different faiths in the modes are staying in the heart. So if my heart is full of Rajagun, then, and my faith is in Rajagun, what I believe to be true and good is in Rajagun, then when I examine what's going on in the world, I will distort it through that lens of Rajagun. And if in my heart is Tamagun, when I hear and see and think, I will distort it through Tamagun. And again, we all have this experience, I would assume. You know, if we're being uh, beset by Tamagun, which tends to be kind of depressed and bitter and angry and, you know, victim mode, uh, then we interpret what's going on around us like that. We, we, we become upset by things going on around us which would not upset us if we were in a mood of sattva. The same things. They just wouldn't upset us. We, we, we'll interpret them differently. And we see this all the time, um, you know, how people talk about things, how they report what's going on, you know. Uh, if we keep up with the news, how different news agencies report the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) The conservative news place and the liberal news place take the same story and they report it differently because what they're perceiving is based on their belief. It's not that we, we hear things and see things and then we make a hypothesis. That's what they say is the scientific method, but that's not how our minds and consciousness work. We have certain desires and so forth, and then our beliefs, our desires, and our association with the modes shape our beliefs, and that changes how we perceive things. Amazing, isn't it? Yes. And many of our beliefs, we are assuming that because faith originally comes from sattva, so we are assuming that what we believe is not a belief. We are assuming that what we believe is simply uh, an objective fact that we know. (laughs) So, uh, we're quite funny, we conditioned souls. So, we believe something is true. And when we believe something is true, we often lose our awareness that we have a belief that something is true. Instead, we think, I know this as a fact. This is an objective fact existing separate from me in time and space, and I have an awareness of it. Rather than, I have a particular opinion and a particular interpretation about what is true and good and possible. And that interpretation may have little or nothing to do with any kind of separate objective fact. All right. So keeping that in mind, uh, we do have some general shared experience of what's possible and what's impossible. I mean, just yesterday I was reading how some scientists, I think off the coast of California, found a new species of beet whale that can stay underwater on one breath for
for three and a half hours. I mean, here the Pachages are staying for 10,000 years, assuming that they stay underwater for all that time, that they don't come up and breathe like whales. Uh, but three and a half hours, and they said, you know, as far as we can understand, this is impossible. We have no idea how the whales are doing it. And the, the article was giving explanations of how it might be possible for these whales to stay underwater. And then it said, but none of these explanations would cover a three and a half hour dive. And they're not just resting, they're, they're swimming around very fast and catching their food. They're very active while they're underwater. When you're active, of course, you're using more oxygen and, and so forth. Yes? Huh? So we all have some idea, well, that, you know, what's possible? Like they were saying, the longest recorded time a person could hold their breath underwater is 24 minutes or something. And we don't have any knowledge of anybody breathing the oxygen dissolved in water underwater. So we have some shared experience that when people go underwater, if they can't get up, they drown. That's our shared experience. And we don't have anything that contradicts that. So we take it as a truth. We have you know, some shared experience that people live know, somewhere generally, uh, unless they have an accident or some disease, that generally people are living 60 to you know, 100 years, maybe 110, 120. Uh, we have some shared experience that people can meditate you know, for two hours, three hours, uh, but not thousands of years. So we, we have some shared experience. And based on the shared experience, uh, these we can you know, pretty safely categorize these sort of things as impossible, as beyond just my own opinion of what's true. That we can look at these things and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that this can, is objectively false due to our shared experience in, in 2021. All right, but then we have the difficulty that every single religious scripture, every spiritual philosophy and every scientific explanation of the origin of life, the nature of the universe, contains things that contradict our everyday shared experience of objective fact. Every single one. Everyone. There are stories in the Bible and the Quran. All the ancient cultures of the world and the scientists. I mean, I always give the example of the Big Bang, of the infinitesimally small and infinitely dense bit of matter that appears out of nowhere and explodes and creates planets and moons and suns that perfectly orbit each other. Wait, that's outrageous. Who has any experience like that? Right, we had this um, devotee who did this uh, preaching radio shows, Radio Rom, and he talked about, you know, you go into a restaurant and you order your primordial soup. Who made it? Nobody made it. It just appears here every morning. <laughs> you know, we're going to build your house with an explosion. We're going to take some dynamite, we're going to explode it, and then there's going to be a house. So the scientists are giving fantastic explanations. I mean, the whole thing of evolution is, is fantastical. You know, lizards evolve into birds and Nobody, that's not within anybody's experience. 
You know, there was just there was a one one-celled organism, and by evolution, it turned into oak trees and orangutans and elephants and people. I mean, that, that's fantastical. That's fantastical. Nobody has shown all of the intermediate stages, even in theory. You know, they have some evidence, of course. And they have some really good evidence. But still, they haven't showed all the intermediate stages, even in theory. And it's certainly beyond our experience. We don't have any collective experience of anything like this. So, this is interesting. Because any explanation of reality as a whole especially origin stories and stories of the cosmos, they seem to not be able to avoid bringing in things that are beyond our general collective experience. Well, that fact might indicate that our general collective experience is limited. In fact, we have a lot of things going on in 2021 that cannot be, that are not part of everybody's everyday experience. They're unusual things. But there's enough of them that even though they may not happen to most people, they happen to enough people that we could say they really are part of the collective human experience. There's a book that we used in, in Gurukul when we were talking about these things the Vedas in Modern Science. It's called Mysteries of the Unexplained, published by Reader's Digest, which is a pretty solid publisher. And there were stories about monsters, uh, stories about strange kinds of things coming from the sky, like rain, you know, like frogs, (laughs) bones, and weird, you know, we have that in the Bhagavatam as well. People who could see the future. People, you know, who remember past lives. People who can use their mind to move objects. Who can read your mind. And then very strange coincidences and serendipity. You know, really things that you're just like, ah, something's going on here besides chance. They want to speak of all of the alien encounters. Very solidly documented by, you know, sober, (laughs) upright citizen types, Uh, encounters with evil aliens, and what about all the encounters with angels and celestial beings? I mean, there's maybe tens of thousands of such accounts from very, very solid people of all of these things. And the, the big governments of the world, like the former Soviet Union and the United States, they take these things very seriously and they actually have research laboratories to f- try to figure out how they can militarize some of this, of course. You have Duke University here in North Carolina that did a lot of study on this um, you know, basically supernatural phenomena. And again, enough people, enough people experience it. You know, thinking about breathing underwater finding a way to live underwater without oxygen or extracting oxygen for the water or what they were doing. Uh, my daughter showed me this. It was a, a humorous video. It was a, a person had done it as a joke, but it was this woman who lives in Sweden and it was a video of how do we do our laundry in Sweden. So she goes outside wearing, she's wearing boots, a skirt, and a shirt. That was it. You know, no coat, no gloves, no hat. 
and the snow is, you know, deep, deep snow, and she's going through the snow. And then she breaks a hole in the ice in the lake. She's obviously very strong. So she broke a hole in the ice, she's pulling out the ice, and then she throws her clothes in the, in the water in the middle of the ice and goes to launder them, and uh, then carries the wet clothes uh, back in a basket and hangs it up outside in the snow. And, you know, I could tell that it was, it was supposed to be humor. My daughter says, you know, she doesn't really do that. She really has a washing machine. I said, well, that's not my biggest question watching this. I said, my biggest question is, isn't she cold? I said, it just couldn't be a real video. She couldn't be out that long in the cold, dressed like that. And she says, no, she's, she's learned how to not be affected by the cold. And there's a particular guy, I forget his name, but I've seen some stuff by him, who, teach, who climbs mountains in the snow with just like a bathing suit and boots. And he teaches people how to not be affected by the cold. Right? And my daughter showed me another video of this lady going swimming in the ice water in the middle of the Swedish winters. You know, so there are people who can do these amazing things, who seem to be able to change the way their body works. You know, one of the greatest, the greatest necessity for us is air. After that, it's temperature. Our bodies cannot stay in too hot or too cold temperature, but these people have trained themselves how to do it. And they're not yogis. They're not yogis, they're not spiritualists. They're ordinary people. And they've trained themselves how to be out in the cold in the way I'm dressed right now and, and not be affected, not have any effect of, of the cold. So we have all this evidence even now. I mean, it's not our general experience. It's, again, it's not our general experience, but it's well documented. All of these far out, supernatural, amazing, gross science can't explain it, phenomena that's going on. So these two things, the fact that any explanation of reality as a whole, especially creation stories and especially stories of the universe as a whole, and a lot that's going on right now on our planet, that can be documented, you know, very easily, shows that what the general idea of what we believe to be true is not. That what we believe is possible, what we believe to be true, is, is just not. No. So, why not? Why should we believe this? Why should we not believe this? Well, one reason to believe this is that, again, our knowledge of what is true and what is not true objectively is extremely limited. And our general idea in society of what's true and what's possible is, is, is contradicted even by things going on in society at the present time, even by people's abilities at the present time, well-documented abilities. So, you know, our beliefs about what's true and what's right and what's possible based on, you know, my own personal life experience and the life experience of most people in my circle, you know, it's really limited. To take that as truth, better to take it that I believe it because it suits my desires and it's my everyday experience. So then why, why couldn't this be, be true? So many things can be true that we can't gauge 
you know, the scientists found a whale who they say the way it breathes underwater is impossible. The way it lives underwater, rather, is impossible by any of their medical knowledge, by any of their knowledge of biology. But it must not be impossible. It's doing it. So that's one reason. Uh, but then you could say, well, then we could just believe anything. And, you know, so many people say so many crazy things. I'm amazed at what crazy things people believe. I mean, just amazed. And I have people, you know, I know people, I'm sure you all do, who chant Hare Krishna, who believe all kinds of crazy things. And, and nowadays, <laughs> you know, we're, we may get, uh, you know, so many messages a day telling us that we should also believe all the crazy things that they believe. So how do I know what, beyond my senses, beyond my mind, what to believe and what not to believe? Why would I trust the descriptions in Shastra? You know, the answer is simple. Well, well, Ramila, it's in the Shastra. All right. Why am I going to believe the Shastra? I mean, I could just as easily believe the Big Bang Theory. Or I could just as easily believe, you know, somebody's conspiracy theories about something. Why believe this? Why say to someone, you know, I, I don't believe that when you get a COVID vaccine, you're going to be injected with a computer chip. Why say I'm not going to believe that, but I am going to believe that you could stay underwater for 10,000 years. And Kandita, I think it was silent Japa. <laughs> Japa, actually, the uh, literal definition of Japa is that it's either silent. <laughs> oh my goodness, while I'm saying this, <laughs> one of my uh, conspiracy theorying loving God sisters just sent me a message with another conspiracy theory uh, video, uh, which don't tell her, but I won't watch it. So the reason that we would say that we can believe what's in the Shastra and we're not going to believe some, you know, that there's, there's, <laughs> there's lizard aliens who look like humans running a pizza shop is that, uh, is that the Shastra is also teaching us how to achieve the goal of life in ways that we can test. I have no way of testing at all, whether or not it's possible to stay underwater for 10,000 years, or whether or not it's possible to chant Japa for 10,000 years. I have no way of testing it at, at all. I, I can't. But I can test the parts of the Shastra that are about self-realization. I can test them and I can see that they work. I mean, it's interesting with modern science you know, when we, we test things with modern science, which also has fantastic claims, um, some of those things do work. I mean, that's true. But a lot of the things actually cause more problems than they solve, which Prahlad Maharaj predicted. Right? So a lot of the so-called great, uh, wonderful things that science and technology claims that it would do for us has had the opposite effect. So it's kind of hard to say, well, I'm going to believe all the claims of modern scientists. And of course, they contradict each other all the time. And as far as what Shastra to believe, we can be reasonably certain that the Srimad Bhagavatam particularly has come down without change, at least for a very, very long time. And the way we can feel some confidence in that is that there's commentaries 
There's extensive commentaries on Bhagavatam by a wide variety of people that have lived for thousands of years. These commentaries are still existing. And in the commentaries, they all refer to the same verses. Pretty much. There are a few variants. And in Prabhupada's edition of the Bhagavatam, he notes where there are some variants. Now, such cannot be said for many other scriptures in the Vedic canon. So a lot of times Hindus or even or Vaishnavas or even uh, followers of Srila Prabhupada will quote from this Purana or this Itihasa or whatever. And uh, many times what they're quoting from has not had a lot of commentary and there are really variant versions and we're just not sure of the authenticity of that Shastra or not. Which is one reason for myself when I hear all kinds of fantastic stories about this or that from Hindus or even from devotees, you know, what's your source? And like there's 300 versions of the Mahabharata, and Madhvacharya said that a lot of the Mahabharata had been corrupted. So, you know, if we're going to take some fantastical story and believe it, then we want to also be able to believe the source of that fantastical story. Like I was saying, you have, you know, uh, Sadaputta made this point. So all these tens of thousands of first-hand accounts of alien encounters, good ones, bad ones. And he said that if we're going to discount all of them, we have to discount human testimony in general. But, you know, I can still decide who I want to believe. Is this a reputable source? So it's like that with Shastra. It's not just that anything that claims to be Shastra... I'm going to accept any more than I would accept anything that claims to be scientific or that I would accept anything that anybody tells me. But the Bhagavatam is is very solid as bona fide Shastra. And as I say it, it works. And we don't see negative effects from following the Shastra. It's not like modern science where, you know... You get so many benefits, and then you're polluting the earth, and you get you get sick. You know your medicines have a longer list of side effects than the list of what it cures. So that way we have faith, and also, you know, we're all having faith in something that we can't test directly. All of us. In fact, we can't live without that. It's not that we can say, well, I'm going to make a decision that I'm only going to have faith in something I can test. You just can't. <laughs> you know, it's just not possible to live that way. So we look at the source, and we look at the overall, and we say, is this a source that I can trust? It's not a, it's not a matter of having blind faith. You know, the atheists accuse we religionists of having blind faith, but, you know, what do they have faith in? The Big Bang? Isn't that blind? How do you know what happened at the beginning of the universe? You were there? <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> Somebody told you a story. Because there's some evidence in the vibrations within the universe. Yeah, but that you could make up a different story about that evidence. So it's not really very solid. And do scientists cheat? Yeah, of course they do. You know, so we're not looking for blind faith. We're looking for faith based on... Uh, intelligence. All right, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. All right, does a deaf mute need air to chant? Um, 
I've worked with a group of deaf devotees at Bhaktivedanta Manor, and uh, they, if they've been deaf life, lifelong, they have no idea what words sound like. So their thoughts are not sounds. And my thoughts are my own voice talking in my head. By the way, not everybody thinks like that, just by the way. Uh, but people who are deaf from birth can't do that. So the deaf devotees I know, they often chant in pictures. I, uh, do they need air to chant? Well, I don't know, but I think you need air to breathe. And japa can mean completely within the mind. And you say, what does the transcendental platform means? not dependent on anything material? Yeah, but how are you going to keep the body alive? So even if you're fully transcendental, the body's still a machine that needs to be kept alive as far as we can understand. Again, Hiranyakashipu was able to do it. Anybody else have any questions? Um, could they... It almost seems like it excludes them from from taking Lord Chaitanya's mercy out. What about someone like that? Um, I, I'm sorry, the, the sound was, was off in the beginning. So can you go back to the beginning of what you said? The first thing I was able to hear was excludes them from taking Lord Chaitanya's mercy. Yeah, someone, okay, when you were talking about, you were talking about those that were deaf. And I was thinking, well, what about someone who's maybe deaf, dumb, and blind? Um, how could they, how could they partake? Were there examples of any, any that have become devotees? I don't know. I mean, there are blind devotees and deaf devotees, and those who have been deaf from birth. Um, if you've been deaf from birth, learning how to communicate with speech is, is very difficult. I mean, Helen Keller was deaf, dumb, and blind, uh, well, deaf and blind, and, but she went deaf when she was about one and a half, which is usually before you get language. She did learn how to speak to some extent. Um, the devotees I know who've been deaf from birth, they, they really try to uh, copy human speech, but it's, it's very difficult. They're not physiologically mute, but um, the sounds that they're able to make vocally are not very intelligible. They usually need some kind of translator. They don't have, I mean, Helen Keller learned how to communicate through her fingers and hands. Why couldn't she get Lord Chaitanya's mercy, someone like that? I don't understand that. Me, how could they receive the, the Maha Mantra's transcendental sound? Ah, there you go. You just answered it yourself. It's transcendent. Atashri Krishna Amadi Nabhaved Grahamindriya. Yes? I gave a class one. That's one transcendental. This is sound that is beyond the senses. And do keep in mind that although we emphasize chanting the Hare Krishna mantra, and rightly so, there are 64 angas of bhakti. And one could, get, uh, one could have one's main engagement through other angas, if that anga is not available to them because of some sort of sensory problem. So, 
Uh, it's not that getting Lord Chaitanya's mercy is dependent on having a certain physiology that's able to hear and chant. Although, yes, we rightly emphasize hearing and chanting. I gave a class, um, several classes, to um, schools that were deaf. And I would speak, and then the, someone would be translating me by, you know, by sign language. Yes. But then we did a kirtan, and it was just amazing. Somehow they, they all loved the kirtan, even though they couldn't hear it. So it was clearly transcendental. I mean, some of it, they saw the, the drum being played, the harmonium, we were singing, and they, they all liked hearing the kirtan, even though, at least externally, they're not hearing that somehow the transcendental sound, they all liked it. Hmm. So anyway, I found that kind of fascinating, and like you said, it, it can only have some transcendental explanation Anyway, my own, I mean, I know Srila Prabhupada told parents of a deaf child that to have their child see the deity. Anyway, there's some service you can do and you can have some connection with Lord Chaitanya's movement through some senses, even if you're very limited in, in your sense perception. Prasadam is another one. There you go, there's Prasadam. I mean, I knew a devotee, I think she's passed away now, who couldn't eat. She... Uh, she had liquid food that was delivered through a tube to her stomach. She, she wasn't able to eat in an ordinary way. She was a devotee, but she was not able to eat prasadam at all. Krishna consciousness is not limited by things like that. I have a question that's not so much uh, in regards to the rest of your class, but uh, important to me. Uh, at the beginning, you gave examples of Muni and some others. Um, Sabara Muni, you said that he uh, was because of his offenses. Yes. Such a great that he was attracted to material energy, and I think that probably all of us have uh, experienced that uh, our mercy is withdrawn and must certainly be because of our offenses. But what if? You can't figure out what you did to uh, what effect you did. You just all you know is you're experiencing the withdrawal of the spiritual energy and being again overcome by material energy. Well, first of all, Krishna sometimes Krishna sometimes comes and goes that has nothing to do with offenses. Like he came to Narada and then he withdrew, and he said, "Nothing you're going to do is going to bring me back again." So, but Narada was still in ecstasy. In separation, he didn't become affected by the modes. If you want to know what I have found to be extremely effective, without exception, is first of all, this is going to sound trite, but it's a, it works. Really want to know. Most of us don't really want to know what we're doing wrong. really want to know. And then you pray to the Lord and say, I really want to know what I'm doing wrong. When you reveal to me what I'm doing wrong, I will not argue. I will not try to justify myself. I will not make excuses. I will fully, completely, and totally accept 
your revelation and I will act on it. Most of us are terrified of praying like that. So if we're scared to pray like that, then we can pray, please give me the courage to pray like that. And I will pretty much give you an ironclad guarantee that if you ask Krishna what you're doing wrong and with with the mood that you really want to know, you're not going to make excuses, you're not going to run away from it, you're not going to justify it, you're just going to accept it and you're going to act on it, and he'll tell you. And don't ask how he'll tell you. He's clever. He has a thousand different ways of telling you. He'll tell you. That will be very clear. (laughs) Most people who are looking for God actually hope they never find him. Uh, Yeah, there's a funny story by one uh, one God brother. Funny, I don't know. Pitiful, perhaps. How for one year he was constantly praying and meditating, I want to see God, I want to see God. Every time he would chant Japa, every time he was in Kirtan. I've told this story before. So he was uh, on Sankirtan, book distribution, and they were particularly collecting money for a new outfit for Gopranima, a red-colored outfit for the Panchatattva Didis. This was probably for Laguna Beach. And sometime before Gopranima, a week or two before, he's in his room, and all of a sudden he sees the Panchatattva in his room wearing this outfit. And his first thought was, oh, I'm, I'm in the temple room seeing the Panchatattva. And then he's like, well, wait a minute. First of all, I'm not in my room. I'm not in the temple room. I'm in my room. And second of all, the outfit they're wearing is the Gopranima outfit. It's not even Gopranima yet. It, the outfit hasn't been finished. It hasn't been offered yet. So what am I seeing? And then he realized, I'm actually seeing the Panchatattva. And as he realized that, then they didn't look just like statues. They really looked that there was the Panchatattva. His response was to become terrified and want them to go away. And he said he's never even wanted to see the Lord after that. That was his response. So, uh, it's a pretty sad story. (laughs) So yes, most people do not want to know what they're doing wrong. They don't. You could test it. Go to someone that you're close to and tell them what they did wrong in the last hour or the last day or the last week. See how they respond. Do they like it? Probably not. You don't want to know what we're doing wrong. You can talk to our other back to God editors. You know, people turn in an article and we'll tell them what they did wrong. And they don't want to hear it. Many of them get extremely offended. Now, people are very eager to hear what they're doing wrong if they've paid for it. So if you paid for tennis lessons, you want your tennis instructor to tell you what you're doing wrong. In fact, if they don't, you'll be upset. So there are certain circumstances in which we are open to knowing what we're doing wrong. But ask. But not like, what am I doing wrong? I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. I'm looking around at myself. I think I'm doing everything right. I mean, I must be doing something wrong because I don't have a taste anymore. 
so I guess I'm doing something wrong. But I, I mean, I think I'm a good person. I, th- then you'll never know anything. I mean, again, just think of ordinary life. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, look, I know you're upset with me, but you have no reason to be upset with me. I mean, I haven't done anything to bother you. Why are you upset with me? You're just completely unreasonable. Tell me what's bothering you already. They don't really want to know. Okay. Thank you very much. Sheila Popa, Kijan. Thank you, Mother Ramadan. Thank you.